0: Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery. This is Anne. Before I get to today's guest, I wanna talk about the progression of this podcast and how it's evolved over time. Um, You may hear in my voice that I'm so much more confident now um, and much happier than I had been before. My trauma symptoms have reduced greatly. I still have hard days, but um, overall I'm doing a lot better. Many of you who come to this podcast, you are brand new to finding out about your husband's abuse. You're brand new to finding out about maybe an affair he had or his pornography use or something like that. And so for some of you, I would recommend starting at the very beginning of the podcast and listening to that evolution or the progression. You can find that on our website at btr.org. You can listen to it in the opposite order. So starting with the oldest podcast first and then working your way back to the present day. It's amazing when I go back and listen to those first podcasts, how different I sound um, from, you know, four years ago. And it may help give you hope that there's light at the end of the tunnel. There's, <laughs> I can see the light at the end of the tunnel now, but I'm still in the tunnel like all of you, and we're all working through this together. So just a thought for those of you who are new to the podcast to consider starting from the oldest podcast first and working your way up to the most present podcast. I appreciate all of you who have given a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts. If you haven't already and you're so inclined, every single review helps women who are isolated find us. Women like you are searching for things online. You know that's perhaps how you found Betrayal Trauma Recovery. You were searching online for answers and you found us. Other women are doing the same thing. We want them to find Betrayal Trauma Recovery rather than you know some article about how to improve their sex life or how to improve communication because we know that when you go down the wrong path, With abuse, you end up in years of chaos and pain and cycle through that abuse. My goal and the goal of our entire team here at Betrayal Trauma Recovery is to give every woman in the world who is searching for answers the correct information so that she can make decisions to get herself to safety. One of the ways we support women in getting to safety is through Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group, which is our online daily support group. Now, the guest today, we're actually going to be talking about physical violence. And physical abuse is not really what we process in Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group. Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group is a place for processing emotional and psychological abuse and sexual coercion in the form of your husband's pornography use or affairs or even emotional affairs. So, if your experience includes a reportable crime, physical assault, for example, sexual assault, We recommend you also make an appointment with Coach Renee. She's really good at helping women navigate their local resources, like their domestic violence shelter or therapists in their area that specialize in physical assault. You're always welcome in Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group, but it's not really the place to process crime, so I just wanna throw that out there. We do have multiple sessions a day in every single time zone. You don't have to set an appointment. You can just do it on your phone. You can do it anywhere. Although we do recommend that the first time you join that you use like a laptop or a desktop because it's a little bit easier when you're not familiar with it. We'd love to see you in a session today. So go to btr.org and check out the session schedule. Okay, now to today's guest. I have Tiffany Barnes on today's episode She is familiar with overcoming hardships. After enduring physical, mental, and sexual abuse, Tiffany was emancipated at the age of 15. At the time, she was only the second case in the state of Utah for a child of that age to become legally emancipated from her parents. While working three jobs to support herself through high school, Tiffany became a Sterling scholar, graduated top of her class, an athlete, and a founder of SHARE, that's S-H-A-R-E, an advocacy group for students by students who had experienced abuse. What began as a small group of students supporting each other, SHARE has since grown and evolved into a 501c national foundation that stands for Sharing Hope for the Abused Through Resilience and Empowerment. As a torchbearer for the 2002 Olympics, Tiffany has always been determined to shine a light in dark places, helping others to light their flame within. As an empowerment coach, she has expanded her effort and is now part of the Kindness Revolution, one of the longest-running national initiatives focused purely on kindness. Her first book, The Throwaway Girl, an inspiring autobiography, is soon to be released. She has a podcast for abuse survivors called Speak Loud. I was recently a guest, and I wanted to have her here so that she could share her story here. Welcome, Tiffany. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So Tiffany's going to share a little bit about her childhood abuse and becoming emancipated, which is an amazing story. And then we're going to focus the rest of the episode on the abuses she experienced from her boyfriend and how she didn't really realize what was going on. And then finally also emancipated herself from that situation. So Tiffany, let's start with your childhood abuse. Did you understand as a child that you were being abused?
1: I think the moment I realized I was being abused was when my dad broke my arm. So in answer to that question, from my earliest memory until he broke my arm when I was six, I didn't realize it. But then once that happened, I was like, okay, yeah, this isn't like typical. This isn't normal. He threw me across the room and I hit a really solid wood door. I didn't know the word abused, obviously, at six, but I knew that what was happening couldn't be right. And I think the reason I noticed that is because, so I had a cast on my arm. Kind of a long story short, my dad would never take his anger out on my mom when he was mad at my mom. He put her up on a a big pedestal. And so instead, when he would get mad, he would pick me up off of the floor from my coloring books and threw me across the room in anger, in some sort of a fight with my mom. He's taking my mom and I to my grandmother's house for the day because he worked a really weird shift of 3 p.m. to midnight. And so when he would go to work, my mom and I would go to my grandmother's house, my mom's mom's house. And we were driving a 1964 Ford, which my dad still drives. And the seatbelts in that car, the reason I tell you that is the seatbelts in the car are very difficult to push the button down to undo the seatbelt. And my dad started yelling at me because I couldn't get the seatbelt button to go down. And that was because my arm was broken. And I'm saying, I can't do it. And I'm crying. And he's like, you know, getting pissed off at me. Finally goes and undoes the seatbelt. You know, basically like yanks me out of the car, throws me to my mom. And my mom and I go inside my grandmother's house. And my grandmother's like, you know, I'm bawling. My arm looks crazy. My mom's trying to say, oh, it's nothing. It must be a sprain. And my grandmother's like, no, this isn't a sprain. We need to take her to the hospital right now. They ended up taking me. And I remember the whole time it was my grandmother by my side, not my mother. I don't remember where my mother was. But my grandmother was the one that, you know, when they were giving me the anesthetic shot, to be able to do what they needed to do to, you know, reform it and put the cast on or whatever it is they did at the time. My grandmother's there trying to calm me down and wiping my tears and wiping my forehead and telling me I'm going to be okay. And my dad picks us up that day at midnight. And so I got woken up, you know, hey, dad's here. We got to go home. And I come out with this cast on my arm. And I distinctively remember my dad sitting on my, my grandfather played the organ. And so my dad was sitting on this organ bench and saw this cast on my arm and just kind of looked down at the ground and didn't say anything about it. But the next morning I was told to tell everybody that I fell out of a tree. And that's what happened to the arm. So I would walk around with this cast on and my arm behind my back Because I didn't want to have to lie to people. And I'm thinking, why are my parents asking me to say something different than what happened? And so that was kind of my first aha moment of, okay, well, they're asking me to lie about something that's not true and threatened me if I didn't say, you know, hey, I fell out of the apricot tree in the backyard. So it led me to believe that there was something more going on that wasn't good. So the actual, like word abuse? No, I I don't think I knew it was abuse as far as the word, but I knew that what was going on wasn't right, but I was too scared to say anything. Were you aware of the emotional abuse that you were experiencing as a
0: child? I'm assuming your mom was also being emotionally abused by your dad.
1: So, actually, my mom was not abused by my dad at all that I know of, and I think she would probably say the same thing. The reason I say that Is my mom was his princess. He put her on this pedestal, as I've mentioned, you know, gave her money to go buy clothes and do her hair and never made her work. And anytime they'd get into a fight, the most of whatever happened is that I saw is he would yell, which was very rare, and he would then come back with flowers and apologize. And he just really doted on her. I was the punching bag. It felt like I was the punching bag when he was upset with her. I was the one that took the brunt of things. So I don't think he was emotionally abusive to her, but I know my mother was emotionally abusive to me. You know, my mom was a very promiscuous woman. That's actually how my parents got pregnant with me. And she cheated on my dad a lot with people in the congregation of the church we were in. And these same people were the ones that were getting up in our what was called sacrament meeting, and saying things. Then I'd see them in bed with my mom during the week. So she would say, if you say anything, I will break your face. That was her one common threat. I'll break your face. And I didn't know what break your face meant, but I knew I didn't want to get hit in the face because that was happening already from dad. Mom would like give me candies, for an example. My dad loved caramels. And he had this tin can of caramels he'd keep on the on the front counter in the kitchen. And my mom would open one up or open the tin up and say, here, do you want one? And, you know, I'm a kid. Yeah, I want a freaking piece of candy. <laughs> you offer it to me, I'm going to take it. So I'd take it and i eat it. It was delicious. And, you know, again, my dad worked that three to midnight shift and I'd be sleeping in my bed, which is w- in the kitchen, by the way. My bedroom was in the kitchen growing up. And, you know, the front door was at the foot of my bed. So my dad would walk in, wake me up a little, and I'd just pretend to be asleep. And my mom would say, Tiffany stole candy today. Or, you know, Tiffany did this even though she shouldn't have, or whatever the case was. And then my dad would yank me out of bed and beat me for taking candy I wasn't supposed to take. Yet my mom was the one that gave it to me and asked if I wanted it. So she was very manipulative, in that way.
0: I'm going to take a break here for just a second to talk about my book, Trauma Mama Husband Drama, which is available on our books page, btr.org backslash books. It's a picture book for adults and so many women who have Purchased it, have said, this helped me so much, and I gave it to my sister or my clergy or my friend, and it really helped them understand what I was going through. Go to our books page, check that out. If you click on it, it'll take you right to Amazon. If you do purchase it, please remember to leave a review on Amazon. Every single one of those ratings helps women find us, and even if they don't purchase the book, it helps them find this free podcast. Okay, now back to our conversation. Talk about your emancipation at 15. You said you're the second woman in the history of Utah to be able to be legally emancipated from your parents. Talk about how that went down.
1: When it started, it wasn't meant necessarily to be an emancipation. Kind of a long story short is one of the men my mother was cheating on my dad with, um, whose name was also Robert. My dad's name is Robert. and My stepdad's name is Robert. But my mom ended up going with him. And he ended up molesting me when I was very young, molesting my sister later on in life as she came along because my mother did nothing to stop it with me. But he was a military police officer and said, you know, if you say anything to anybody, I'll kill you. Well, he's six foot two or three. I don't remember exactly, but he was tall and intimidating and had a temper. Um, He was physically abusive to my mother. And so when he said, you say anything, I'll kill you. Well, I believed him. You know, I kept my mouth shut. Uh, my mother, who's turned to drugs once she's left my father, you know, it started with speed and then it turned to, you know, marijuana and then it turned to cocaine and then it, you know, just kind of escalated. And now she's still a drug addict on much heavier drugs. I thought, you know, my mom wouldn't protect me if I said anything anyway. And she came to me one day when I was getting ready for school and said, you know, what's going on? And so I told her because I thought she would protect me if she was asking about it and basically confronted him. And we had this family discussion and he turned to her and said she's lying. I didn't touch her. I didn't molest her. Everything she's saying is a lie. And told her that she had to make a choice between me or him. And she didn't even hesitate two seconds, turned to me and said, you have until tomorrow to get the bleep out of my house. So at that point, I was 13 in the eighth grade. And she had a yard sale, sold my belongings in front of me. And I had basically a garbage bag full of clothes. And I had a Tootsie Roll piggy bank that had some change in it. And so I walked past her and her yard sale of my belongings. It's still, just so crazy to me that she did that, but I took my coins from my piggy bank and got on the UTA bus, which is our local bus system here in Utah, and uh, went and lived with my biological father up in Layton. So the guy that was physically abusive to me, so I just thought I'm either going to be homeless or I got to go live with dad. I don't have a lot of options, and so I took the risk and went and lived with dad. And luckily, he wasn't physically abusive towards me anymore. And I think a lot of that stems back to what I just said. His anger against my mother was taken out on me. Because once mom was gone and they divorced, he never touched me again. So that's kind of why I equate it that way. But because he took me in, I became a latchkey kid. Meaning I woke up and dad was gone for work. And I came home from school and dad was still gone for work because he worked two jobs. And so, you know, being 13, going through sexual abuse from my stepfather and then not being believed when I say something and getting kicked out and basically felt like I was worth nothing. If the woman who brought me life and brought me to the planet doesn't want me, what's the point? And I became anorexic and suicidal and had a lot of mental, um, I don't want to say issues, but things I just was having a hard time dealing with. So I guess in some form issues and there was a morning I woke up and I said, today's going to be the day I end my life. I just don't want to be here anymore. I just don't see the point and I had that other, you know, the devil and the angel. So the angel on my shoulder said, yeah, but if you kill yourself, you're letting all of this defeat you and you're letting them all win. It wasn't those exact words, but something along those lines. And I realized it was time to get help. Either get help or just be done with it. And I knew that this didn't need to define me. It was a weird, strange moment. I don't know how to really explain it. It was very, very surreal. And I reached out to a social worker and had to go through two years of lots of therapy to get myself right. To the point that I could just even look in the mirror and not be disgusted at myself and feel like an unworthy person. That time I was 15. And I said, what's next? And I knew it wasn't good to go back with dad. Obviously couldn't go with mom. So he mentioned foster care. And foster care was not anything I wanted to do. For the very reason when mom left dad... We bounced around a lot because she'd go from man to man and then go back to the other man. And she just couldn't keep steady relationships in her romantic relationships. And so I went to 23 different elementary schools in a very short period of time. And I knew when you're in foster care, you get bounced around a lot. Not always, but generally that's what happens. And plus, I didn't want to live with a strange family. I had separation issues. I had attachment issues. You know, many things as you can see from what I went through, I said, there's got to be another way. <laughs> you know, there's got to be something else. I don't want to be a foster kid. And he said, well, you can do an emancipation. And I said, well, I don't know what? I didn't even know what that meant. And so he explained it to me and he said, but I need to let you know the odds are stacked against you. There's only one other case in the state of Utah at your age that's ever won an emancipation at the time. And I thought, well, what's the worst that can happen? They're going to tell me no, and then I have to go into foster care. So I went for it, and I was awarded essentially custody of myself and became the second case in the state of Utah in 1997, 98, to be the the second case in the state of Utah. How did that feel? Scary. (laughs) Scary.
0: that felt scary and sad and great all at the same time kind of
1: a thing yeah for sure I think it was relief for one and again one thing I didn't mention a big reason why I did that is because my mom she's very vindictive unfortunately and I didn't want her to say I was a runaway and then I'd have to go into like juvenile whatever you know detention or however that process works and so I felt relief because I felt mom didn't have those chains or that hold or that control or, you know, I just really felt like there was a big separation that I just, I felt so much relief. I didn't have to be around her, see her, any of the following, you know, which is sad. She's my mother, <laughs> you know, she's the reason I'm on the planet, um, but she's not my mom, you know, and I see a big difference in those two words.
0: So you're on your own, and when do you get involved with your abusive boyfriend, who you did not know was abusive when you met him?
1: Right. So, again, that was 15. I got emancipated right around the same, a year or so of that. I started my nonprofit, which you mentioned in the beginning. And because of that nonprofit, I got to run the torch in the Olympics. And that's when I was dating Danny. I ran the torch in 2002. I met him in 2001. I'm a huge Dave Matthews band fan, and so is he, and he was living in Louisville, Kentucky. A friend of mine from the singles congregation had said, hey, Dave Matthews is coming into town. Did you see that? I'm like, oh, yeah, I saw, and I want some tickets, but, you know, looks like it's going to be sold out. And he's like, well, I can get you a ticket, and I've got a couple buddies of mine coming in from out of town. He was from Louisville. And I uh, want to go and I said, heck yeah. So I paid for the ticket and him and his, he had two friends came and picked me up. And one of the guys was Danny in the back seat. And uh, I remember at that concert, he was singing one of my favorite songs. Like he was standing next to me. And it almost was like he was singing it in my ear. Not that he was, but it was like, I don't know. It was like this little romantic moment, you know, my favorite band. He was cute. We both love Dave. And Just stayed in touch, had a long distance relationship as far as just like writing letters, talking on the phone. He was the first man I ever fell in love with, you know, Uh, the man I lost my virginity to. So like there was a lot of attachment there. And um, he ended up, as a surprise, packing up his little Honda Civic and driving across the country and knocked on my door. I was renting a, a basement room in a room with some other girls and was like surprise and I was like oh my gosh you're here this is so awesome and he's like no I'm moving here I'm like what it was just so awesome you know was so excited for it and um we ended up moving in together and renting a basement apartment and his friend rented the other room it was a two bedroom apartment we shared one room and then he had the other and it wasn't until he moved here to Utah that that romanticism and that like oh i can't wait to eat breakfast in the same room as you i can't wait to go do you know this or that or you know all the things you want to do when you're in a long distance relationship um once he was here it was like the monster came out <laughs> i started to see who he really was
0: did you ever consider that that talking on the phone and all that before he moved here was grooming You know, I didn't. Well, you you wouldn't until hindsight, obviously.
1: Right. No, I didn't see any grooming, though, because he treated me like gold. He honestly did. He wrote me poems. He sent me flowers. You know, all the little cutesy things. And so I was like, this guy is, like, perfect. He flew here to take me to homecoming at university. But he was here for moments, right? He was here for three days, five days, you know, short spurts. So it's easy to have really like, oh, every little moment's amazing with you. There was no issues before he moved here. We didn't fight over the phone. He didn't say mean things over the phone. It wasn't until he got me one-on-one in person that it started. And it started, I, I very distinctly remember, it started the day I ran the torch. So 2002. February of 2002 and I can't remember how it happened but we'd just gotten home and we were in the basement and started arguing about something and he came over to me and shoved me and the torch fell out of my hand and I was so worried that that glass on the torch was going to break because somebody had paid for me to keep the torch and it was like wow this is so cool and he shoved me and that torch fell out of my hand and I was like whoa And then I started crying, and he came over and put his hand over my mouth and said, you know, something to the phrase of, you stop your crying. And it was like it wasn't okay for me to shed emotion and tears, and and it was such a big day in my life, it was like he was trying to take away my moment, if you will. We see that a lot, where on a holiday or
0: on a birthday or something, and they might not shove them. Like shoving is pretty overt abuse obviously, but they might do something to like throw you off, emotionally ruin your days. So- We're going to pause the conversation here and continue to talk about Tiffany's abusive relationship with her boyfriend that does involve pornography use. So we're going to get to that part of the story. So stay tuned for next week. If this podcast is helpful to you, please support it. Go to the website, btr.org, scroll down to the bottom and click on support the podcast. And until next week, stay safe out there.